This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Judges, chapter 7, verses 1 to 22. If you'd please open your Bibles with me. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all of the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his rent tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretations, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. 
When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshida toward Zerera and as far as the border of Abelamelorah by Tabith. This is the word of God. I'm wondering, when was the last time that you looked at your resume? I've got mine here this morning. And uh, no, I'm not looking for another job. Um, but but between, between some hires uh, that we're making on our team and just thinking and reflecting about this passage, I've actually been, been thinking about resumes a little bit. They're kind of like the original social media profile, right? A, a lovely picture, usually of a younger, more beautiful version of yourself, you know, accomplishments and accolades, a, a glowing team of references. And, and that's understandable, right? When we're interviewing for a new job, we want to put our best foot forward. We want to show ourselves as competent and qualified and strong. So much so that a survey of 7,000 resumes revealed that job seekers will often embellish or, or even over-report their strengths. So 71% of people in this survey, for example, reported more years of experience than they actually had. 64% expanded on their accomplishments. 60% overstated the size of their organization. And just under half of people falsely inflated their compensation. It's kind of like the young up-and-coming Wall Street banker who is interviewing with a, a new and bigger company. His resume, as you'd expect, uh, was flawless, Ivy League graduate, all the accomplishments, the perfect references. In his final interview, he boasted, listen, my clients are never disappointed with my rates of return. I have generated record rates of return for them, record profits for our company. I mean, I'm the best broker in the company, hands down. Interesting, said the interviewer. What would you say is your greatest weakness? Well, that's easy, he replied. I'm prone to exaggeration. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that all of us tend to highlight, right, our perceived strengths and minimize our known weaknesses. It's true in work, it's true in life, right? We want to present ourselves, our families, our relationships, our finances as strong and as sufficient. And to be fair, how else are we supposed to hold up in a world that 
demands so much confidence and accomplishment and competence and strength, right? Doesn't strength beget strength? What other options do we really have? Well, we come to a text today that offers a a surprising but far superior biblical alternative. And in a word, it's weakness. Weakness. Now, what could weakness possibly accomplish that just raw power can't? And, And why would weakness be God's preferred disposition for his people, his preferred method by which to carry out his purposes and plans. And so with those questions, if you've, you've not already turned to Judges 7, go ahead and open your Bibles to this remarkable chapter. We heard it read earlier. And, and what we're gonna do is just kind of follow the natural flow of this narrative. We'll jump in, we'll make a few observations together as it relates to this dynamic of power and of weakness in God's economy. The first observation we might make is straight away Related to God's sovereign sufficiency in weakness. The sovereign sufficiency of God amidst the weaknesses of his people. The scene opens in verse 1 with Gideon uh, and his assembled army of about 32,000 men encamped by a place called the Spring of Herod. And this is one of those Old Testament Narratives that's just loaded with, with irony. Uh, and it starts here in verse one because the spring of Herod actually translates to the spring of trembling. Now, why were they trembling? Because we read just a few miles to the north stood the impressive, imposing army of Midian. We're told later in, in the story that this army lay across the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number as sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Experts and commentators estimate something like 135,000 troops. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in any scenario facing 10 to 1 odds, I am looking for more strength, right? More resources. I need more men. I need more ammunition. I need more resources. I need more. But in verse two, we see one of the great surprises of this text. Look at it again with me. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Wait, too many? Lord, we're already down 10 to 1. Are you sure? But the Lord continues, and in doing so, he pulls back the curtain and tells them why. He says, there are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. This is super helpful because God knows the propensity of his people, the propensity of all people, really, toward self-sufficiency, Self-adulation, self-congratulation. And so he tells Gideon, you've got too many, reduce the army. Verse three, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So what's happening here is just simply leveraging the law, a law from Deuteronomy that allowed for the fearful to excuse themselves in battle. So you can imagine Gideon All right, gents, uh, in keeping with the law of God, anybody who isn't sure about 10 to 1 odds, uh, you know, go ahead and and y'all can head home. One soldier gets up, 
begins to walk away, then two, then 200. Might just see old Giddy starting to get a little hot under the collar. Then 2,000, and then 22,000 in total of these troops are gone. (laughs) He's already behind the eight ball, and and now Gideon has just lost two-thirds of his fighting force, remembering, of course, what lies to the north, the imposing foe of Midian. But what's even more remarkable is that the Lord isn't finished. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water. I'll test them there. Anyone of whom I say to you, this one should go, shall go. Anyone of whom I say, this one shall not go shall not go. And this is one of the parts of this narrative that can can get a little bit confusing. So the remaining army goes down to the water, and we've got lappers, and we got kneelers. And as much as we might be tempted to try to configure some mysterious Bible code from the methods of water consumption, the, the point is not here. We shouldn't overthink this. The point is that God is further stripping away the perceived strength and self-sufficiency of his people. He's sovereignly taking them down, 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 all the way to 300 until they're basically left with nothing but God and his promise. Is that enough? Is that enough for us? In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation and prayer. So interesting. Part of the proclamation reads, it's the duty of nations and men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy. Hear this now. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace. That's pretty remarkable for 1863. And boy, does it ring true today. I mean, I've been thinking about all of you. I've been thinking about our church this week. And I think for a church like ours, and even more broadly, our community here in Canfield, self-sufficiency might be one of our biggest temptations and sin struggles. We have so much. God has blessed us with so much, and, and yet it's so easy to lose sight where all of that comes from, from all of that, where all that strength actually rests. Brothers and sisters, let's be reminded today that it's all from the Lord. And sometimes, oftentimes, the Lord will remind us of that by removing the shiny objects of our perceived strength. The question, of course, whether you're there today or whether you will be there tomorrow, is how will we respond when he does that? What is our response when our our pet object of self-sufficiency is stripped away? It could be our health, it could be our finances, it could be a particular relationship. How do you respond in that moment? Is it like clinging and grasping for that thing? Lord, not no, I can't do it without this. Or is it surrender? Is it opening up our hands? 
Is it a deepening dependence upon the Lord? I mean, I wonder what, what life would look like for us as a church community if we, we viewed those moments and experiences of weakness, not so much as a curse, but a blessing, a, a vehicle by which we could actually lean even more heavily upon the Lord. Now, we gotta be careful. Like, this is not to trivialize our weaknesses or our trials. Just the opposite. I mean, listen, secularism, humanism, other atheistic worldviews, they've got no answer for this question. Weakness is simply a product of natural selection, right? Weakness or suffering is simply the product of a, of a random and meaningless universe. But, but if your weakness is part of God's sovereign plan, then it is filled with divine purpose. Every illness, every loss, Every broken dream is brimming with divine purpose and opportunity to cry out to the Lord. Of course, we, we know um, from our experience as Christians that this call to full surrender isn't easy. And one of the reasons that it isn't easy is because on the outside, things may not have changed. Things may not look all that different or even all that promising. And this really takes us right back to Judges 7 because on the outside, Gideon's lowly army of 300 are still staring right down the barrel of Midian's artillery. But it's in this place, in this strange, surprising place, that we make our second observation about power and weakness in God's economy. In verses nine to 15, we see God's reassuring kindness in weakness. God's patient, enduring kindness. And we see it specifically in his exchange and relationship with Gideon himself. You'd think um, in the natural flow of the narrative that we would move immediately into the battle scene, but that's not what happens. There's a pause in the action and we've, we zoom in a bit and it's good for us to pay attention. Again, verse nine, that same night the Lord says to Gideon, arise, go down against the camp for I've given it into your hand. There's the promise. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. You shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened. And this is so remarkable. This is so remarkable. And the context of, of the Gideon account in Judges actually helps to raise the stakes even more. Gideon was not Winston Churchill. Just the opposite. Back in chapter six, we see Gideon's own self-assessment. Chapter six, verse 15 says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least of my father's house. Here's a man with no social status, no impressive resume. You wouldn't have hired him. I wouldn't have hired him. No experience in battle, nothing. You keep going in chapter six, and, and we really don't even see a man of great faith. Even after God reveals his plan for what's about to happen, Gideon's asking for wet fleeces and dry ground and then dry fleeces and wet ground and it just gets confused. It's like, enough already. Like, what, what else do you need? You'd think the Lord would just move on to somebody stronger, at least somebody with more faith. But he doesn't. He comes near to Gideon. He reminds him of his presence and promise. And he even goes so far as to say, listen, Gideon, I've given the enemy into your hands. I know this all looks a little absurd. But if you're still afraid, if you still need additional reassurance, I want to give it to you. Afraid? Of course he's afraid. 
I'd be afraid, you'd be afraid, of course Gideon's afraid, so he takes the Lord up on his offer. He and a friend of his sneak into the camp, and at just the right time, they overhear a really, really weird conversation. I mean, it'd be like, you know, hey, uh, Greg, you know what, I, I had the weirdest dream last night. A, a loaf of barley rolled into the camp, and it demolished the tent. And Greg, by God's sovereign revelation, says, oh, I know what that is. That's, that's the sword of Gideon. And we are about to get steamrolled. Now, what are the chances of a blueberry scone rolling down the worship center, leveling this place and taking us all to heaven? I mean, they're, they're about, they're, I'll tell you the odds, they're about as good as an army of 300 defeating an army of 130,000. And that, friends, is exactly the point. Here, through the mouth of the enemy, God provides Gideon a great kindness, a patient reassurance of victory. Listen to these couple of passages that paint a picture of God for us. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Hosea 11, a passage we read with our elders this week. God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. This, of course, is not to say that God isn't holy and just. Of course he is. This isn't even to say that his patience is inexhaustible. But what this section shows us is that God is supremely kind and patient and encouraging to his servants. I like how Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He describes this idea as the spring-loaded tilt of God's affections. His natural bent, the regular flow of who he is and what he does. I absolutely love being a dad. It's like the best. It's, it's one of my favorite things in life. But as much as I love being a dad, I have to confess that kindness is not always the spring-loaded tilt of my affections toward my children. No, you're not familiar with impatience or quick-temperedness or a lack of capacity. Those are just a few of the blights, and there are more. But not so, brothers and sisters, not so with God our Father. The Bible tells us that he is the Father of mercies, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And even in my best moments as a dad, even in your best moments as a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa, our kindness toward our children pales in comparison to the kindness that God shows to us, perhaps most especially in our times of weakness. And as people who experience weakness all the time, this is really good news. This means that God has not abandoned you in your moment of weakness. He's actually near to you. This means that God is poised. He's spring-loaded to shower you with encouragement and assurance. And, and I think some of us need to, to speak that to our hearts the next time we're suffering under the weight of disappointment or discouragement. I mean, you look around this room, and it's hard to believe. 
Someone's here in our Sunday best. We've got our smiles on. How are you? Great. How are you? Great, great. Everybody's great. Everybody's great. But I think if we're honest and vulnerable, I wonder if we might acknowledge some of the real stuff, the hard stuff, and, and rather than leaning away from, leaning into our weakness, knowing that this is the place that God is eager to provide so much kindness. And that leaves us on the threshold of battle. Right? There's things happening on the outside and the inside in this text. Even with the assurance of God's sovereign sufficiency, even with the experience of his kindness, what to make of the powerful, formidable Midian army. And here we make our, our third and final observation within the text, and it has to do with God's great power in weakness. God's great power displayed amidst the backdrop of great weakness and the insufficiency of his people. And we just keep walking into surprises. Um, another one here, this time as it relates to battle strategy. After being refreshed by God's kindness, responding in worship, Gideon rallies the remaining 300. Verse 16, check it out. He divides the 300 men into three companies and puts trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, you blow your trumpets as well on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I am not a political scientist. I am not an expert in battle strategy or war tactics. But this is weird. <laughs> this is weird. I mean, trumpets and jars and torches and shouting. I mean, how is an undersized army burying trumpets and jars going to take down a hundred and some odd thousand battle-ready Midianites? The echoes, brothers and sisters, of verse 2 should be ringing right now. The people with you are too many, lest Israel boast over me. In other words, if this works, there is no doubt who gets the glory. And sure enough, God makes good on his promise. Gideon and his army execute the plan and as crazy as all of this has appeared on the surface, verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, that's the enemy, and against all the army. And in the end, if you can believe it, the 300 never lift a sword, they never hurl a spear. Led by an insecure leader from an insignificant family, whittled down to a couple of hundred lappers, never actually engaging in traditional warfare, this is the power of God on full display. And the backdrop is weakness. And this is really the climax of the story. The essence of what Judges 7 is teaching us today, that God displays his great power in our great weakness for his great glory. That's it. God displays his great power in our great weakness for his great glory. Many of you in the room might be familiar with the name Chuck Colson. Colson was a popular author, speaker, but probably best known for 
founding a ministry called Prison Fellowship. They ministered to the incarcerated. Uh, but prior to founding the ministry, Colson was a really successful guy. He was a su- successful attorney. He eventually served as a presidential aide to Richard Nixon. But in 1974, he was imprisoned for seven months after pleading guilty to obstruction of justice charges surrounding the Watergate scandal. And in his book, Loving God, he he describes an experience later in life going back to a prison to preach and to serve. And he writes this, as I sat on the platform waiting my turn, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned, many cases argued and won, lofty decisions made from offices. My life had been the perfect success story. But once I realized that it actually was not my success that God used to enable me to help those in prison. All my accomplishments meant nothing in God's economy. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. Listen to this. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. It is not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. In other words, God displays his great power in our great weakness for his great glory. And here's what this means for you. This gets real, real practical. If you barely dragged yourself here this morning, if you are completely spent, if the only thing you brought with you to offer to the Lord this morning is need, then dear brother or sister, might I suggest that you and your life are in the perfect place to provide the backdrop for the power of God to shine. On the other hand, if you've strolled in here this morning full of pride and self-sufficiency, maybe indifferent to your need for God, thinking, you know, God's really fortunate that I would show up this morning. People around me ought to thank me. I would... um, I would plead with you. I would plead with you to just take a step back and not take yourself so seriously and remember the words of 1 Peter 5, which say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, this account in in Judges 7 is, of course, not the only time that God displays his power against the backdrop of weakness. It's actually one of the major themes that runs all throughout the scriptures And in the ultimate display of humiliation, in the ultimate expression of weakness, the eternal, omnipotent Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would leave his glory in heaven for the dust of the earth. He would come and he would would experience the full range of human frailty and weakness. He would experience betrayal from his friends He would endure injustice. He would submit himself to a fraudulent court. He would carry his own instrument of death to Calvary. He'd be mocked. He'd be stuck between two thieves. And ultimately, he would plunge himself into death itself. But that's not how you win. You don't win if you're dead. That's not what power looks like. 
But in God's economy, (laughs) this is exactly the kind of weakness that provides the backdrop for the power of God to shine. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, your own calling. Not many of you were wise, not many powerful, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the strong, what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, the essence of Judges 7 is getting to the essence and the heart of the gospel, that God uses the weakness of the cross to provide so great, so powerful a salvation for his people. This is like getting into the heart of the gospel here, that in Jesus Christ, God receives not the sufficient, but the insufficient. Not the put together, but the broken down. Not the proud, but the humble. Not the resplendent, but the repentant. So come. Come to him. In fact, if you're here this morning and and you'd say you're probably not a Christian, you've kicked the idea around, but you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to do it this morning. To come to Jesus in faith. To come to him in repentant surrender. If you've got some questions about that, there'll be some people up here after we dismiss that would love to chat with you about that, would love to pray. And if you are a Christian, maybe today, maybe today is the day where self-sufficiency dies. Maybe today is the morning that you come up and find one of our prayer partners or pastors and just lay it out there. I mean, I, I know this is a fine group, but I imagine there are more of us together then we would realize, we would say, you know what, I've been trying to hold it together, I've been trying to save face, I've done everything I can do, but the last week, the last month, the last year has been an absolute dumpster fire and I need God to help. Whether you do that privately or publicly, prayer in its essence is just a, a disposition of dependence upon God, so we'd love to pray with you even today. Listen, friends, in God's economy, the dynamic of power and weakness is not at all the same as we see it played out in the world around us. But I hope what we've seen in Judges 7 today is that that is actually really, really good news. And it's good news because God chooses to display his great power in our great weakness for his great glory. Let me pray. Father, I just pray that you will allow the kindness that we have seen from you today in this text to lead us to repentance. And Father, we repent and pray that you will forgive us for our sins of self-sufficiency, of pride, of self-congratulation, of leaning upon other sources and things to give us the strength that only you can give us. And I pray that we would fall into your arms this morning, the Father of mercies, It is unbelievable that you would receive needy, broken people like us. And so we thank you for that and pray that you will help us to continue on by your grace and for Jesus' sake, amen.